My name is Rukia. I for sure do not know where this is going, but we're just going to sit here and talk about art and life. Thank God. <laughs> um, fun fact for everyone, Ijaka and I went to the same school a long time ago in Nairobi. And I think I was uh, in that school for one year, but I do remember Ijaka being very focused in art class. I mean, for most of us, art class was a way to forget about math class, but <laughs> it has been years, man. And we've been catching up in the last few days before this podcast about what's happened since we said goodbye. One of the most interesting topics being your experience at KU and all the things that went down there. I mean, I just want to dive right in a collective effort that you were involved in was able to influence the passing of a bill. I think it's safe to say that I, I want to start with that story. <laughs> Where do we begin this story? That was my second, mm-hmm. the beginning of my second year in KU and I was joining the, it's called the Jandaria Business Incubation Center. Mm-hmm. So on the very top of the Jandaria Business Center is Yali. Yali basically runs the whole of the top floor. But yeah, I didn't exist um, before 2015. And I was there since towards the end of 2014. I, I got to school and I started feeling like, especially because a lot of us were exposed to Western schools very early. If you remember, we used to have these fairs in school where like a lot of schools would come to pitch to us where you would want to go to university and that sort of thing. So you already, by um, when we were pretty young, had a... a a pretty high standard of what your tertiary education was going to look like. You know, you were being classed with those kind of institutions. So, not to make much of a comment on the bearing of Kenyatta University as an institution, but as the art program, like I think I had enough insight to make a critical um, conclusion that I wasn't getting what I would call is even nearly a good um, tertiary art education. So I went to my first year and felt like it was meh, it was okay. And then, um, and most first years are like that. Most first years are introductory, um, being introduced into what is going to be the next three years of you. You can't really, most institutions, you are going through the same sort of first year. So it's excusable. Um, then my second year is when I now started making really real judgments. Like, no, I don't think this, I, I can't waste, I feel like I'm going to waste this time. And so at that point was when an organization funded by one of these larger missionary organi- uh, missionary movements or organizations um, like it's a church movement like a, Fra- a Franciscan sort of anyway it's one of those sort of organizations and it was um, sponsoring the reintroduction of creative creative subjects into curriculum so it wasn't exactly targeted at music craft that there is supposed to be First off, legally, as like almost like a right, is supposed to be given to these young people. So, how do we get into um, making some change there? The only way is through legislation, right? And legislation at the parliament level, as far as Kenya is concerned, it had to go get tabled as a bill that then um, gets voted on, and then now um, implementation. 
of um, what actually was happening is where I came in was I was teaching um, final year students, so that's class eight, um, uh-huh. who are about to sit their final year exams. But that this could be based, could be compared off of a study that was not, it was rather compared off of results of previous levers. The idea is you give, you teach this subject rather than whatever it used to be, the period used to be used for before. And then now compared results, are going to see um, a, deduct, a reduction in what these people deem critical subjects um, when this guys examined. That sort of question, especially because art itself was not going to be examined. So they were like, does this waste time? Um, there was a large team surrounding this whole thing. So I can't say that I was part of the whole process. There's a, like the collection of, inform- of all our information through the different institutions. And then the drafting of the bill after that was done by other people. But the, um, that was my part in the process. And to summarize, it was passed. That was in 2017. And I think these things are usually available online. These bills, when they pass in parliament, you can get them off of the government of Kenya something website. So it's really um, something to be proud about. The only thing now is that enforcing is has to happen. So you pass a bill that's very nice, but implementation and enforcing um, are things that have to happen on the ground. You literally have to go school by school, making sure is your period being used, because it's something about accountability. You know, institutions themselves have to come out and, like the headmaster, for instance, has to come up and decide that in this school resources, because that is a general conversation. You know, the whole reason people didn't want to do it is because an art class takes a lot of resources and those resources could be diverted to other things, you know. So, in terms of money, like, um, are we going to use this money in investing in what is supposed to be the, the creative class? Or So there's a lot of conversations about accountability. Um, I have never taken, I've only followed up because I have a number of family members who um, work in institutions, like in the form of uh, one of my aunties is a headmistress, and then I have a, a cousin who's a teacher at the local school, the local public school system level. So he had other schools who he can. So I, I formed a small sort of network of accountability. Like, is it, is it being taught in your school? And is it being taught in your friend's school? And is it. So at a small level, I get that it's happening. Um, but I've never really taken time to follow up on what the end result or did it really become a thing? And then, you know, we went through a lot of change recently because our whole um, education system was revamped. We have a new education system currently. It's a terrible system, if I would say so, but like that's a whole conversation in itself. Mm-hmm. And um, they have, they, they, I mean, that's a whole conversation in itself. We'll have that conversation <laughs> another time. <laughs> that was, that happened. And when after I did that, that is prior to now really starting my, now that was before I began my second year, I think. So, so it was, yeah, it was now in my first year or my first semester of the second year that um, I determined I'm not doing this anymore. I took, um, what do you call it? I took, a, um, in KU there's a name for it. You just pause it. So anyway, I did it so many times I, I'm laughing because I forget the term. And then I ended up um, with a friend. He actually was the one who managed to get the space at the 
center and we came up with this idea to we're going to make a studio and try and model it into some sort of a business so that we would have space to work that was like the whole concept i don't even know how we pitched it but we got the space we got the resources and so like that whole year of 2015 was spent working in that space it became a real pain because of the way they wanted it to run like a business they were very very much um they were trying to run it in a way that it couldn't work you know it was becoming too much of a commercial enterprise when we were trying to be <laughs> contemporary artists it just was not working so but while we were there we made very very strong networks and we met very interesting people and showed work in very interesting spaces it was just um a year when i got to spread um the work that i was doing at that time and really get it out and the fact that i'm a, i think that i'm an artist a lot of people for some reason now start like it automatically related to success but they didn't understand that it it had a system behind it there was something working behind it it wasn't just freestyle you know but uh that what was how i end up at um, that was the story and so the fact that i think it was really interesting for a lot of people who visited the business center to find us as artists there because mostly you go in there with a, a suit and tie mentality and you're really expecting to find innovative ideas with that sort of concept you know entrepreneurial innovative ideas i don't think you ever anyone ever expects to see artists when those words come up so it was always like oh wow okay and then like we were the bohemians in the house so you could always come chill with us and have your your shady stories after you were done with the like serious business meeting things that you were done <laughs> doing and yali yali produced very interesting characters like young very interesting young leaders show up at yali from across africa so you make very interesting um very interesting networks people who i still like um connect with to them literally across africa um guys from ghana west africa and actually very friendly people who also partly because some individuals would come from nigeria and i have a history with nigeria so we we had very good relationships with people who passed um passed through yali what's your history with nigeria um when i was 8 years old we moved to nigeria that was around 2001 so um it it was a, it's been an on and off experience i i feel like i grew up there we were there the first time for like 4 years and then did another 2 years later on but i have a very intimate relationship with the, with um, that country especially because for me i feel like um when it comes to art that age when you're around 8 years old is like a very critical age it's a determining it's even scientifically um psychologists or scientists who work with that sort of thing believe that around 8 is the age when um it's break when it comes to creativity so for me being in Nigeria at that time was very very vital because for one I was getting so much visual stimuli like there were so many things I'd never seen in my life before that I saw in West that was the first place in West Africa I'd ever visited and West Africa has a unique just as a unique look to it for someone who's never been to that part of Africa and a unique way that life happens um also was um the fact that growing up comfortable as we did I had access to a lot of the sort of visual stimuli that I wanted or that I needed to access so it was 
particular time when since the um we move around a lot you don't maybe form strong relationships initially i had a lot of time to do a lot and enjoying my own sort of stuff and so i was surrounded by a lot of that and the only way to regurgitate was to draw or to work to make something off of the things that i had on me um so like even till today i keep a lot of my sketchbooks from all literally over 15 years ago i have a lot of visual content that i have from um when i was young and i think it's like vital to telling the story of the artist that's creating today so mm, that's my <laughs> my connection with nigeria <laughs> i know that you and i talked a little bit about like you being an artist when you first started practicing and that was when you were with patrick uh, a lot of people have their ideas about what uh, the period that you call your practice begin practicing so um i think the normal way of thinking around it is that when you've completed um tertiary education like university or whatever then now from that period you've officially started saying my practice began when i uh, first started showing to the public that's what i call the beginning of my and that generally begins when i joined uh, the studio with um Kabi at, when he was at the go down not the dust people and that was um around 2012 right so for me it was just when i had completed uh, my ib and then now that that's the period before joining university but instead i went to um do what we call the till yeah method um mentoring and uh, patrick and uh, i feel like that's space had a very strong influence on my early practice and has a very strong influence on a lot of of young practicing artists in Nairobi right now and many other artists um the go down as a as the art center that it also has the space because of the the various sort of creative minds that are what very influential like so for a lot of us it grew us in that way and I was there for just a couple of years because also those were the final years of the go down um which closed officially last year in wrong 2019 but that process began around 2015 the, like of pushing artists out of starting to to close certain functions and so that was the period when Patrick moved to the Dust Depot located at Railways Museum and i wasn't i was no longer practicing with the, with um, those guys at that point but like the point being um that the art center had a strong influence on but um the politics around that time i actually want to talk about that i don't know i i, I very strongly feel like um a lot of people have their ideas on what it means to be an artist and um i think for some of us who have who do it as a way of living as a lifestyle you're just an artist by your lifeline like you live that sort of life you have to you make a critical you get like a critical view of what it means to be an artist and so you you cannot create for yourself you can't really be making things that you are making sort of for your own personal it's like more so what's conversations are you trying to have and really how you engage in the public this thing that you're making is for other people it's not just for you you know so i think i don't know if i made this distinction on record if we had this conversation on recording where i was trying to say that um people uh have to 
make that conviction. You are the visual artist. Did we have we had the Yes, but you can say it again because it was awesome. (laughs) Oh man. So yes, I have very strong views on um, what you call yourself, what you choose to title yourself and when you call yourself an artist, what exactly are you? Um what sort of artist are you and just sort of respecting the um respecting the discipline you know because it's like having it's it's just about i feel like if i take my practice very far i'd like it that those people who look up to my work and maybe look towards it for direction or fashion or whatever also respect the fact that i put in a lot of work into becoming that specific thing so if it's a very very good painter and you really like the paintings it's like how what did he go to like um what lengths did he go to to get to this level of skill in painting you know so that's why I think it's important to be very categorically clear about what it is that you do <laughs> so that it helps like those people who look towards who like for me when I look towards the people who I think inspire me it's usually very clear I know um what this person was doing what led to them doing that sort of thing um what inspired them what moved them it, so it it really helps it really helps to sort of have a clear view of what your practice exactly is. There was a point that you had made about how uh, Patrick wasn't trying to make other Patricks. I like the way that he did um, his version of mentoring. Um, I think it is easy when, because I've also begun instructing people, uh, young people, let me be more specific. I think it's easy for someone who you are teaching to fall in line to fall in line into what you're doing because in essence they are copies you tell the person draw it this way and you're doing the right thing so the person will draw it that way and so slowly they will start doing things the way that you do things you know so it, it takes investing into an individual to know that this person's strengths and interests and the things they like are this and that and the other and then now um building upon that then just saying because I, I mean, like me now, knowing that I'm so good at um, doing illustration in one, two, three way, I teach you how to do it in the one, two, three way, because I know that's like ABCs for me. Rather than getting to really know that you, are, you, 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 you know, you have an interest in a certain direction. So that's like with Patrick Law of um, where are you coming from? What do you bring to the table? What is it about you? And then from there, you sort of have the freedom to explore and become yourself. So that sort of opens very, very good. Um, you would expect people to be strict. I think a lot of us come into it thinking there's going to be a strict, a school-like relationship where if you're not achieve, achieving certain results, you will either get kicked out of the studio or you won't be able to. But it wasn't like that. It was like you would take risks, you would do a new sort of thing. You were apparently an acrylic painter, then all of a sudden you go do this oil painting and it wouldn't be looked down upon and frowned upon on like a lot of us and opened our minds to be more of um, independent creative rather than looking like Mukabi copycats. You're right. I, having met him once for a very short time, I, I always hoped that there would be another time where I could just sit down and gather all the information, all the wisdom. What he has done with Dust Depot is incredible. Quick question though. I want people to know more about your art. What happened to the commission that you were supposed to sell today? Yeah, okay, well, I mean, basically it was just some commissions um, off of some guy who had seen my work. Um, 
everything on social media mm-hmm. and um very fortunate very fortunate timing because i needed those commissions to come through so very much going to help um with my practice and with my own personal <laughs> stuff I, I hope you have a way to share images that would be very interesting yeah if you can also share images well besides the podcast and what people are going to be hearing either way the work is image transfer on canvas okay. um the content is or rather the theme of the work is based off of the city i picked up work that to me seemed like they spoke about the current the, the way the city is reacting to the current situation the, the the lockdown thanks to covid and that kind of a situation that's those are the images that i was really looking to uh to do for him because mm-hmm. he had seen actively he had seen other work he had seen other work and then now based off of the other work he saw he was like can you offer me new ideas and so the images of the work that i've just done to me are a symbol of um a new way of being mm-hmm. the lockdown situation i'm really trying to inside myself like so when i move around i'm really trying to find things that make me that um i don't know how to put it like that uh that tickle that thing that makes me very interested in working right like today for instance on my commute i saw some i, I was watching um the way corruption has uh adapted to covid times it's very interesting actually so like the way the cops are used to taking bribes yeah. from the matatu has changed so it was very fun to watch i'm like wow everything is adapting to covid even corruption so like that's something that i might think of doing work on how has it it's changed? very hard to get any sort of source content you'll see in the work okay the work. like it's a whole story okay Dude, it's so funny for instance now yeah. um these cops here they're wearing face masks mm-hmm. and to me that's like a whole new level of that's taking it to another level this is like mask thieves literally it's like now we're dealing with the way you have a, ter- a terrorist depicted to you is uh, an individual who's masked and who is um it doesn't have to be the actual militant terrorist that we know of you know it can even be a person in a suit it's just something a face that you can't see and is doing bad things to you is a terrorist so like now the cops have masks and you know generally the way it's thought about in like uh, justice circles for instance is that the way to fight spice is because you can see a person's face so for instance when you're reporting to the commission um the anti-corruption commission about incidences that you see you're supposed to be able to describe the person you saw um committing the crime because that way it makes it much easier to bust the police at a police station based off of a description of what they look like yeah so now they have masks so you can't like it defeats the purpose you literally can't even see who it is that is you want to to make a report on they've become like the next level thieves. So I don't know, I was thinking around it and I'm like, I'm going to do some work around like the way they, they, they must be so happy. They must be so excited they can do their shit without like any oversight now. <laughs> but it's an interesting take, you're right. I never thought of it that way actually. I was also kind of worried. I was in a supermarket at some point and everyone was wearing masks and I was like, how do you know who is a thug and who's just a normal person protecting themselves? Because also not everyone is wearing uh, the recommended ones, like the hospital ones. People are just like making their own, like all black, all like pimped out. 
and so I'm like, hmm. There's also a lot to be yeah. said about those those fake masks that people are wearing. I mean, I'm like, honestly, do you understand the purpose of a mask? Some people wear masks that don't cover the nose; it just covers the mouth. I'm like, do you want us to see your nose? <laughs> there's a, there's some very funny conversations that are coming out of this, um, like having to adapt to what a virus of this nature means. You know, like also, like the whole covering thing is so funny because now we all understand what it feels like to wear a barker and have to walk around town. <laughs> have to walk around a crowded place. Yep. We feel you now. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when Juice, was it Juicy or Jana, when I was taking photos, uh, because I was just so excited after after I oh, you were so awesome. I thank you. <laughs> uh we'll talk more about that. But I also felt I had my phone right. here like this. Like, and then I can just click with the volume button. Yeah. So I'm like, hmm, what's that kube I've done like you this and I'm taking yeah, I, was, I felt like a superstar. Have you looked at them and thought of ideas about what you're going to use them for? Yeah, quite a lot, actually. Now, you know, I've been working with, I have this very strong politics um, around my work. Yeah. The reason I shoot on photography and everything is because I have, it's, it's many conversations, but it's mainly a surrounding issues of copyright, of course, issues of ownership, like how much do you own something that you maybe take off of the public domain. You understand the way like the photos that are offered freely to use, but like I usually wonder how much of it is my work once I um, use someone else's content. And so um, I'm going to use your your photos so hard. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Awesome. I can't but, wait like, to see. I, I, remember, I was asking about myself about that politics. I was like, honestly, I feel like I could offer your photos up for an exhibition like they were my work. I mean, shame. no, that's <laughs> fine. I, I, I was just walking around taking photos. I, I really can't take too much credit on it because no, I think you'll do the work on it. Gold. That content is gold, imagine. Like those things, to me, um, I found that there's no, everything is important content. Like you literally can't waste anything. Even when it looks like a sketch, it's literally so valuable. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sometimes use things from several, several years ago. It's even funny. I'm like, I can't believe. I thought to take this thing all those years ago and now it's working. So it's like your videos. Yeah. Uh, when you were shooting the video with the dog, how long ago was that? Oh, so this, okay, these are the other ones. Uh, that was, I, w- I think that was 2017, those many right. years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was just at home and I didn't know what I was going to use them for. And honestly, I was just about to delete them from my drive because... What was the idea behind the whole, like, why record? I think it was just a, a little bit of narcissism. I was like, I think I'm a genius. I think I just record myself saying random things. <laughs> but um, it just ended up clogging up my... my um... <laughs> it's not vain at all. It's uh, it's um, self-archiving. It works. It, right. So, let's call it self-archiving. Right. I mean, I, I recorded myself brushing my teeth. And then I saved that for some reason. I'm like, why? Sometimes I look back and I'm like, why did I do this? Oh, maybe because it's in black and white, it's it might be artistic, uh, but it's not. It's just me brushing right. my teeth, nonsense. But I'm li- I'm I, liking the fact that you have found some use for it. I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to have um very interesting things because there's just it's weird. It's like how I've had a number of artists speak about the way they think through creation and how they think through making things, and there's this idea around the birth of an idea in your mind and then somehow it doesn't stop it just halts somewhere mm-hmm. and then through experiencing the world 
the various ideas then get to grow, quote unquote. So they're like the ideas I know I've had several like years ago, and then they just sort of pause, and then you keep getting content every other day, maybe from people or just through experiencing life, and then these ideas. So like with yours, I don't know. There was some. There was a. But I don't know if I should say it here because then I kill that. No, I'm not going to say it on, on the podcast. Okay. I'm going to do the work first so I don't forget it. Okay. Importantly, though, but importantly, I have to say that there was there was a time when I was asking people for a lot of their source material when I just started really taking videography seriously. Mm-hmm. So, like, on my, if you check on my Instagram page, that begins when I did this piece, um, this video piece that has um, guys working. Looks like people are working mm-hmm. on the top of um, mm-hmm. a skyscraper. So the idea behind it was the same way you would have collage, right? You tear from a fixed body of something to create a new body of something. Uh, I was taking source material from very, very many, many different sources to tell just one story. You put them together in compositing, in video, in After Effects to tell one story. That was like the concept behind it. So I'm like thinking of how to cut out from your videos um, aspects of yourself and then impose that to other media and see what sort of um, collage-like effects um, come out of that. And I think it will be very interesting. Do you credit them as the photographer? No, I feel I feel strongly about crediting people for in recent years for everything that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think it's important and I think that it's it's something to be embraced. There's a culture in, I'm going to speak loosely and say in Africa, but I can speak very, very well for, for Kenya. Mm-hmm. That is a capitalistic culture that kills movements, right? Mm-hmm. So artists don't want to move in movements because of holding on to your market. And mm-hmm. I think it's a very silly idea. They destroy uh, this ecosystem of ours, right? So me, I personally, I, I work against it. I really believe in in sharing, in, in collaborating in that sort of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fact that I saw something that Rukia did, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether Rukia is actually a photographer or mm-hmm. did it as an amateur or did it for fun mm-hmm. or whatever it is, the fact is it came through you. Mm-hmm. So one way or the other, you are part of the conversation. And it makes things interesting when there's a conversation. It's not like, like honestly, am I, you're not a god. You you can't be the beginning and end of everything so i saw the image i made the work i made the concept i came up with the thought process i did the whatever i'm like damn bro it's it's why i i feel and strongly that other conversation the one about um movements it bothers me very strongly that artists don't have the openness of mind to not be afraid to to work together or to look like they work together i think that's where the the, the belief in in crediting comes from is it is it more when you're speaking in Kenya? Is it more? Uh, is there like a like a certain type of artist who lean towards that kind of thinking? Is it like more musicians, more visual artists, people more like? In okay. which worlds have you seen this? I can I can only speak for the visual arts. Mm-hmm. I can't say for music, but I can speak for the because I'm very 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 well versed with the visual arts for a long time now. I can definitely say it's a conversation that's actually openly spoken about. It's something that a group of us openly um, speak up against. I'm very much for artists creating in tandem because if you're a critical individual, you know what a unique idea looks like. A unique idea does not 
not look like two things that look the same. You understand? If I give you a pencil and Rukia gives you a pencil, like we both have a different idea behind that pencil. If we want to call it a sculpture. So it's like, let's not be silly about it and say you or Rukia is trying to steal my pencil market. But like, what is it that's the critical idea behind the work that you're giving me? So it opens up a lot of conversations. Also, it opens up the conversation that is an educatedness in the, and a sense of, of not many educated uh, individuals in the practicing. And by educated, I mean critical enough to do uh, what I call critical thought, basically. People who can think very hard behind the maybe figurative or physical aspects of the work, the thing itself. So you have the thing, but then what else, you know? Uh, that is the thing that makes Maasai market work what Maasai market work is, you know? The, it is just the object, really. So what else lies behind this object? Um, yeah, so many conversations, man. Now, who asked me a question? I feel like I'm trailing off. All that no. was on the record, by the way. All that was on the record. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you did the, the cross. I thought you weren't religious. <laughs> oh, my God. It's called hypocrisy, Rukia. Take us slowly, man. <laughs> we're, tra- we're unlucky. Yeah. We are learning our prejudice. It's true. <laughs> what, were you ever religious at some point? Yeah, very much so, right? Weren't we all? <laughs> but then now I'm questioning a lot of what that was also, you know. You have so many people you Skype chat with. Oh my goodness. I have like only two or three people. How I've seen you, your whole list. How do you know? Wait, did they show you my list? Yeah, you showed me your whole screen for a second. <laughs> what? Okay, I'll stop playing anyway, with this I'll... mouse. I can see like you have a pattern with um IT. <laughs> it's not really working in your favor. <laughs> I'm saying like I was initially like we are all I, I had that um challenging my my place and who am I and all that sort of in a religious whatever lens. But then again, I don't know. We were never we never grew up in a in a really like, religious household as such. It was very much theatrical in our in our home. It was like playing a part. A family has to go to church, that sort of thing. And then also, you know, it was also veiled in like having to move from state to state, from country to country. And then there's this idea of a church being a home. So like you build a church, you stay in a church for a couple of years, it becomes your church sort of thing. So my folks also also sometimes felt like it was too much work starting off in a new institution, in a new church. So we really just didn't do it. And so for that, um, in our household, it was not something that you had to even think about, like, am I being religious? It was your own personal conversation, you know, um, as far as that is concerned. There was a time, me, all my religious interest, I think, has surrounded art. So there was a time I was very much interested in reading about Western art, right? And Western art beginning from the period that is the Renaissance. And if you read very well about the Renaissance, that means there is no way you're going to miss religions religions impact on that period of art right because they were pretty much the commissioners of the day um so a lot of my it's, it's such a long conversation there was a time i went through a whole esoteric period where all i was reading was about the kabbalah and and uh what is it called baphomet and all of that like i've gone through so many of these phases it's it, these days i just laugh about it but um <laughs> What changed? I, did, I, I, I What do you mean? What changed? Well, what what made you not do that anymore? Why was it on your face? Oh, because I think right now I've um, reached a climatic phase in that conversation, 
where I um um what would you call it? Like I don't even know how to put it and, and be very kind about it. Like I'm living life uh, a day at a time and not letting the wider bullshit affect me. <laughs> so the wider bullshit, what I what I call that, what I call that is um, man-made constructs. So things that I feel like anything that was a man-made institution or a man-made imposed or a man told me that I should do this or a man has me thinking in that way, I have a very critical view of them. I put them aside and and like I really take my time to mull that over and I'm like, if you ask me about it, I'm like, I'm still thinking about it. Give me time. So it's, it's a conversation that, so I'm just living at a time and really not, even because there was a few years ago, my main conversation was spirituality. Now saying I'm not even, it's not about religion anymore. Now it's just about being a spiritual being. But now I'm like, ah. <laughs> I'm at the point that I'm like, no, bro, it's just about getting till tomorrow. It's about getting to tomorrow and being a good person at it <laughs> while you're doing that. So I have this very critical conversation going on in my mind right now about man-made constructs. When you think about it, all these things that a man or a group of men sat down to decide that other men <laughs> should do, men being a collective term for human beings, is just some bullshit. I'm like, why? Who makes you? Who makes you think you could sit down and like determine for, like, what gives you that amount of power? That's so much power, man. Sit down as a, a few to determine for the whole. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Something very critical. Um, the religion conversation is already out of the door for me, man. Oh my goodness, a long time ago. I read about the Council of Nicaea a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. You've read about the Council of Nicaea, Mountains mm-hmm. that comes together to form. The Council of Trent? No. No. Rukia, are you religious? No. <laughs> I think I stopped being religious at like 14. I won't, I won't break your heart then. So like there's... um. Those, I mean, you're, the people who are listening to this will probably go in and, and maybe they've read about it or read in themselves. But there's a Council of Trent, which is um, a group of men, again, who come together to um, review, and I'm going to be as honest and critical as I can here, um, to review uh, biblical literature of the time. And that was pre the King James period, when we have, you know, those Bible versions called King James Bible version or whatever. Mm-hmm that period so this group of people come together and determine that i am we don't think these books need to be read and we think these books need to be read and we think this is too much for the christian populace and i'm like what gave you the power to determine what the masses should receive as far as this biblical literature you should have given um individuals everything and allowed critical thought to take place like let someone determine that actually i don't believe in the shit i'm reading here or yeah this makes a lot of sense to me to sort of try to script it into a storyline to me was where already religion got um, cut at the neck. Like, there is where they blundered the biggest. Then on top of that is the institution's lack of credibility. So over so many years, um, things were not rolled back. Like, why wasn't whatever they're called, the papal, it's called what, the papal library or something, the, the library with a lot of important texts related to Christianity that's in the Vatican. It's not a public resource. It's a, it's a space that only um, maybe highly trained theological professors can access. I'm like, why? This religion claims to be the, the religion of the people. And so I have many questions around not just Christianity, but a lot of institutional, just a lot of institution where you're just being told that it works this way, you know? So, I mean, 
it's that sort of conversations that and then I think about them and I'm like you get so anxious starting to think about it that at some point I'm like, Oh man, I think I'm just going to go to bed and wake up tomorrow and be a good person to all the people around me and then go to sleep and wake up the next day and do that mm-hmm. until like <laughs> my body is done with living this life. Because yeah. you decide to make to to tackle the wider conversation it becomes a bit tricky, you know. It's a good point. That's just I how do, I do I do remember um, from what I remember from high school when we were together, um, you you were very nice. You were a tall, kind person, <laughs> and so <laughs> and so. I'm glad to hear that that's that's been your motto since then, and you haven't changed. But um, I mean, I didn't go to the in depth sort of in books and read all this stuff. For me, I was praying five times a day. At some point, I was very obsessed with being Muslim, I was very obsessed with um, Arabic, and I was very obsessed with all the girls who look really nice in hijabs. I just thought it was a very beautiful thing to be a part of. And um, yeah, I even remember in, I think this was Uganda. Yeah, I think actually it was after I left Brayside. And yeah, I just started being really um, into it. For me, it was very beautiful. I don't know how I can say it, but for me, I just found it very beautiful and loving how like, you slaughter a cow during Eid and you give all your neighbors and um, men kind of like gather around. It's, it's, um, very it's like a very beautiful culture. Um, I agree. Yeah, and you would really fast in solidarity and during, <laughs> when, you're, when, you're, when you're breaking the fast, it's all this loving food and people are just talking. and you ca- I just kind of saw people come together during like Ramadan and Eid. And I remember going to my brother and asking him to teach me how to pray. And he, he taught me, he taught me how to pray. And I remember asking my dad to buy me the mats, the, the really cool, beautiful mats. Mine was blue with the with the uh, dira, so it's like the, the compass that shows you where the where Mecca is, where you need to, to face. And I just remember really loving that. And it was, I couldn't wait to pray. It was just such a nice r- little routine that I made for myself. And then... I don't know what happened. I think for a while I just started forgetting to to pray. I mean, that was the first thing that happened. I just started, I don't know, being lost in books and uh, hanging out with friends and speaking to people, having crushes, like going, like growing up and then kind of forgetting to pray. Uh, Yeah, somewhere along the way, I just started questioning. And of course, the moving around countries and schools and cities and homes and different neighbors, different clicks different groups of people all made me question why there was a necessity to have such a routine it made me start examining other people's teachings because i was also in a catholic school for three years and things were just similar you know i go home they're talking about the same thing and in school they were talking about the same thing and i didn't know why the, the two groups didn't trust one another in that sense of like people are nice to each other out, outside the context of religion like people are neighbors people give you services in the hospital people teach muslim kids even though you're christian people greet you you accept like it, life goes on outside that context and then when it's these days to be religious it was very seclude, secluded and very like completely yeah. forgot that kindness that you had practiced to just fellow human beings, not just your religious people, throughout the week. Yep. So for me, I was like, mm, I don't know why we have to be hypocrites <laughs> on on Friday and Sunday. Like, I don't know why. Why are we doing this? 
let's just continue Shit. how we were on Wednesday and Thursday. And then it, for me later on at, at like I don't know 2021 20, going off to university and experiencing things and see, and talking to people, talking to different people who are in even more groups or religious practices like Seventh Day Adventists and Shias instead of Sunnis and I just going why i mean ultimately it's just the same belief there's something or someone we won't see until we die that's created us that's kind of like kind of what they're saying <laughs> and then there's all these stories around, around that but then I, I was just asking myself like if that's what we ultimately all believe like why all these other different stories because for me i thought like the teachings are the same but people are trying to like they uh, formed their religious group based on them or their leaders before them concentrating on a section of that thing that is so called like the one thing that is common maybe some people concentrate too much on like god created uh, for seven days and then i mean for six days and then rested on the seventh and then the seventh day adventists kind of heavily rely on they do that and then the people who believe really strongly believe in jesus and then muslims he's kind of just another prophet believe in another people kind of just like dissected this book and they're like you know what this is what fits us this three four pages they will be taken by other people and then it just became that <laughs> i think they were really cool stories i think they are triumphant stories <laughs> they teach you yeah it's, it's crazy exactly. it's a policing it's a policing tool you know mm-hmm. it's very unfortunate and it opens up the space for a lot of conversations um but i think centered around power man mm-hmm. people just chasing power and trying to find whatever way they can use because, um, like when you were talking about uh, the your love for the Muslim religion previously, all I had you talking about is your passion for the beauty of culture. That's what you really were saying, you know. And that's where religion has gotten got stabbed in the back, you know. Religion was this beautiful thing from the beginning has been a beautiful thing. Like every other institution, it's just a thing, mm-hmm. but a beautiful one from the very beginning that just got corrupted. Mm-hmm. Guys just decided, no, this thing, by the way, can get me a lot of power if I just tell people that they just go this way with me because there's a higher purpose behind it, mm-hmm. they'll do it. So it just fucks everything up. Now mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my goodness, you've gone and ruined what was truly a perfect thing, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of us, like, went through, I know a lot of my, myself and a lot of my friends um, who grew up around me went through our what I call our Muslim phase, like where we really wanted to be Muslims. Oh. Like myself also because really because i felt i had started critiquing already christianity and its loopholes you know don't kill and then went and killed the, all those people during the templar period mm-hmm. don't do don't you know like very silly things and i was like you know but muslim religion seems to me to be a lot more open and a lot more about like the reality of life it has the grittiness of of what it really means to live life you know the ideas of like um concepts like uh where if you killed someone, for instance, mm-hmm. and then the family would have to take either a life or take, what is it, a compensation in kind of for the life, right? Mm-hmm. I think what that tries to say to me, what I read through that, is an opportunity for the beauty of forgiveness to show itself. Mm-hmm. So, like, most people, I would feel, would probably not actually want you to be killed. Like, yes, you're, the thing happened, the person is dead. Like, most people would sit back and actually not want... So I'm just trying to say, to me, it, opened, it was a religion, like, rather than Christianity, that tells you don't do this, and then goes and does the complete hypocritical whatever of the, what 
it's telling you, I felt it was a more open-minded and more realistic religion, one that, that addresses issues to the, you know, like, so a lot of us had those kind of, but then again, you, you find people who go and twist that and start to use it in, um, what is it called, in, um, when these people who use re- the Muslim religion to incite um, terrorism, what is it called? It's where you use teachings, good teachings, to militarize people. There's a word for it anyway. When imams are teaching the um, religion and then saying that it's the it's right to die for the... I thought it's just... Yeah, a... there's a word. No, there's a word that describes that act of doing that. Um, it's not inciting, but it's... Yeah, so anyway, like I'm saying... You know, like now you use that, you take a beautiful religion like Islam and then turn it on its head and start using it in that way. So it's like, it's about, it breaks down to people. It breaks down to people and this urge to use good things for power seeking and like evil deeds, you know, is what I feel anyway. Have you met um, what what you would say in your opinion, open-minded artists, but who are also heavily religious? Yeah, funnily enough, um, <laughs> it's always a very interesting. Uh, it's always a very interesting conversation. The thing is, with being human, is I think we just like factions. I think humans just like factions. I don't know why. So, like, if you're in the art world and you're religious, you're already having a hard time. You're one of the one percenters. You're like, you're uh, what is it called? You're a speck of salt in the ocean. Like literally. Because there are not so many people who would be proud of this, the fact that this they are practicing within the boundaries of these institutions. You know, you feel like it, these things limit you. If you're a Muslim, I already know you can depict um, a face, for instance, that supposedly goes against religion to to de- figuratively depict faces and stuff like that. You when know? you're, when you're so yeah, sure really, most, really super religious, yeah, because they are. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying I know a lot of Muslim artists who would not want to be, they're really Muslim, but they don't want to be open about it because they don't want to be questioned about the fact that they've created in that vein, they've created things that, so, I mean, I know a lot of people, there's this one guy, um, the exhibition we had, he's not now, he's, he's an artist named Andrew, and Andrew is an artist I respect, I love his work, and his conversation is always religious, Right? And uh, the reason I respect his work and like what he's doing with his work is because there was um, a time, actually, maybe like a few months, when I was very strongly uh, using the Bible or using scripture as a source for artwork, right? So I would take scripture and turn it on its head. Again, an influence from my interest in the way that Western artists from the past had created, you know. It, I found it very smart, um, like very exciting. The fact that artists back then, um, because of the way that work was commissioned, give you the task of creating a work of art, and because you had to make this commission work, but you didn't want to sit in the constraints of the church, you would make a work that um, tricked people. Those of us who can see beyond the work could see the funny connotations that you were trying to show, but the church saw what it was that they wanted to see. So. I like that. I like that subversion. So I was trying to use scripture, like I would take um, like Acts three eleven, which is like uh, uh, a very short verse that just speaks about turning around, turning around from sin. Then I would play on that concept and make a painting that instead looks very dirty or something, but it's still trying to say the same thing. 
Um, so Andrew's work is that Andrew takes um, concepts that I know he pulls from scripture and then tries to, or rather applies them to contemporary life and contemporary struggle is exactly what he goes for. Like the struggle of, for instance, having to grow up in a city like Nairobi. You understand? Yeah. So I respect artists who are working in that space. Um, I think is what I would say about that. Um, there is value to every kind of work. So whatever your conversation, I actually, I respect that. But personally, I'm, I'm not anymore an artist who would work along those lines. In the lost files of the, of the first interview that we had, uh, you had mentioned about, uh, you had talked about advocacy in your work and um, what matters. Right. Um, well, I I mentioned that I advocate um, locally. I do a lot of grassroots advocacy. I'm in the in tackling topics like uh, extrajudicial killing, impunity, um, low level corruption, um, disappearances. Just topics like these that affect what I feel are the real people on the ground. I advocate around centers like the Kibera and Madari Social Justice Center with the Social Justice Center's working group. So this um, what this does is it opens up a forum with real people. That's what I really like about working in spaces like this. That means you get to talk to that person's mother, you get to talk to that person themselves who was assaulted, you get to talk to just real people who are going through real things on, on the ground. Yeah. Also because that is the kind of thing that makes up the subject matter of most of my production, the work that I make. Um, like I mentioned in the previous, um, in the previous uh, podcast that uh, for me, I value very strongly the, the work that I do around advocacy and the, the real work that I do. And I feel like the product is just the, the artwork. What you people will receive as the artwork is just the end result of a long... Uh, line of either questioning or a long, long line of research or a long line of looking into something is that that is the end result of all that. So an artwork is a long story. It's not just a product. Um, besides that, I don't know what else I'd say about advocacy unless you can prompt me. <laughs> it's um, just my space. Yeah, I can't remember now, but it was along the lines. Oh. Yeah, I think you had talked a little bit more in, uh, about what physically happens to you when you do these things oh. yeah what are the what are the uh, inevitable downsides to doing what you do well i mean i wouldn't call it a downside as such but mm-hmm. it's uh let's say it's part and parcel of doing what you have to do mm-hmm. so and i think i take a, i take much less of um i don't want to sensationalize it i take a lot less of um the brand than the people who actually do this for as a life's calling the real social justice workers the real advocacy these are people who I respect very much. Uh, they're guys who their, their whole lives are dedicated to exposing the truth, um, to taking care of the masses for no next to no compensation. Um, but I have definitely been through very, very many funny, hairy situations in the pursuit of making work and in the pursuit of what would, we could loosely call collecting evidence. Yeah. Um, sometimes some, what advocacy work concerns is just literally collecting uh, uh, evidence is a white term you know but collecting information let's call it that that can aid towards ending some of these things that happen because a lot of it is about talking 
you know, bringing it up, rather. So there are many bodies that are here to protect us, but you, they don't know what is going on. So when myself or other people can show a video or an image or a recording or whatever it is of some of a reality happening or taking place, that I saw this impunity taking place, that makes a big bound and makes a big difference in um, in changing the situation. For trying to collect a lot of these things, I tried to take photography in town and I ended up, oh my God, so many times getting arrested. That one is common. Um, there are times when I've been in places where I knew something was going to happen. For instance, maybe I knew um, because of informants, you know that the police... Nairobi town is not exactly a humongous town. It's a kind of like the space you can literally walk through maybe in the span of an afternoon, which makes it a very small space, you know? So when things are happening in Nairobi town, with the right information, it's very easy to track down where a certain activity is happening. If the police intend to raid, for instance, the city council intend to raid, um, there are various bases where these people who sell things on the streets... Um, they have to hide when the city council show up. So there are various bases they have around the city where they hide, which are places that are known to some of us. So when we know that there's about to be a raid, you alert state people so that they can save their... If you're caught, they take your goods away, and then you also get arrested. So at the very least, most of these people prefer to be arrested, but at least have your, your wares safe somewhere to be collected. And so whenever... There was a time I got caught in the middle of trying to help these people um, coordinate the movement of stuff from one of these places to another day. So I was con also because of my outlook and what I look like, they were sure I was one of these people. So, you know, I mean, it's many different reasons you end up getting caught in the line of trying to, um, to do this kind of work. But for me, it's very important because I feel it's what defines... Um, defines a strong word but one of the pillars of my creativity of my creative pursuit is doing this kind of thing and what ends yeah. the arrest i mean what is it bail is it warning is it what happened it's funny at this point if in okay so there's a, a police station in town that's central police station um and i'm not certain i had your question but i'm just going to freestyle with this <laughs> um i i most of the times now, I'm so well known at that police station that I just go, I greet those people, they put me in, they do the usual booking, we laugh about it, and then I leave. Like, um, it's like I've become so common there. <laughs> <laughs> but turn to points where, like, you just hope to be released. You know, like, they don't want to listen to it, they don't want to, they're not having it. But it's never death. <laughs> it's never death, so, like, yeah. <laughs> We're still here to do to yeah. do it another day <laughs> and, and none of your i mean that has never worried those people that help you or your family what what has their take been on it my family mm -hmm. i don't know the truth is like my family family like my mother probably doesn't know my work gets this extreme um and i wouldn't want her to know i think so is and, this off record then uh, sorry is this off record Oh, you can say yeah, no, no, this can be on the record, but <laughs> I doubt you'll hear it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, no I, I, I wouldn't want to share the reality of the situation with her because simply I just don't need her to panic because her panic then becomes a burden on me and then makes work difficult to do. Um, the members of my family that are aware are like my cousins, um, some of my uncles, just in case.
case something ever happened, people would know exactly what it was I was doing. But no, I don't see. And even then, and that's it, people will always warn you and give you words of, like, take care of yourself and that kind of thing. But there's, I, no one has tried to stop me or tell me that I need to stop doing this because it might harm me, that kind of a thing. Um, and I'm well aware as a, I mean, I'm an adult. <laughs> I'm well aware of, like, how how realistic the situation can get. And so, like, I'm very much, I know how to take care of myself. There are many measures I've had to take in the years leading to now. You don't just jump into advocacy. It's really something that uh, I started, I think, the right way. You start by going through a learning, learning through people who've done it before. So I was there with members of these advocacy groups who are pretty prominent right now. So it's like, I think... Um, aware that shit can get real and like that one day these guys can come and you know land on you so it's something that i walk around and think about every day even as i practice it's just a, a mad reality it's a mad reality it's a thing that i definitely constantly think about the reality of having um of maintaining a family life in this sort of it's it's just crazy i watched um, a documentary on boniface mwangi's life the other day um centered around the his family life, his family life, and um, what what it means for his young children growing up, knowing that, knowing his lifestyle, knowing the kind of life he lives, the fact that he him and his family receive death threats like on a common basis, I'm just like, dude, I don't think that's something that I'm I have the guts to put someone through, and definitely not children. So I don't know, man. And the thing again is, once you start, it's not easy to stop. You know what I mean? Like. Once you start having this sort of conversations, you feel, or I feel, very um, guilty pulling away or maybe not having this sort of conversation anymore. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's crazy. You don't know how it's going to like end, maybe you, or when it's going to end. What you call the end, you know, it's like a if saying that by tomorrow or like at some given point that we're calling the end um people are suddenly going to be good to one another um policies are going to be changed such that they they take care of the masses it's like some of these things will never come to fruition so you can't even start to think of an actual end to to advocacy you know what i mean there's always going to be someone fucking someone else up and someone has to stand up for those little someones <laughs> i mean what what i, I would like to know Ever, have you ever felt like advocating against things? Are there things that bother you so much so that you can't, you don't, you can't have a conversation without um, addressing them? You can't. When I when I say have a, when I say have a conversation, I'm talking about even like your form of creative work. You know, you can't really just create work without this sort of things passing through your mind. Do you agitate about anything? <laughs> Yeah, I do. One of the one of the biggest one for me is is the things that I see in like the domestic culture that we have. Yeah. Leaving religion, leaving all these other things that kind of built that up. Uh, just the lack of self belief and having a strongly feminist conversation. It basically you're trying to talk about how, um, if I'm not wrong, it's more so that females are getting stunted in the society or like in a sleep-like state, but you're talking more towards the feminist aspect of your conversation. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't try to give it like this name. I just hate it when it happens. <laughs> so uh, I try to, to talk about it um, in my writing or address it just by doing things. I think I think that's my, my biggest one. It really breaks my heart. And I don't know why that has a, such a strong hold on me, but it does. It's one of the main ones. Because, like I was trying to say with myself, it's not just something you jump into. You have to be very much informed. Because also, nothing gets done the right way when it's not done in um, some form of order. You know, you're just making noise if you're not doing things with um, some sort of order to it. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to make, um, I'm going to start advocating for the LGBTQ community and you know you're going to have so much downpour on you, on yourself, you know. So I think it's very what you say is a very very valid things you know mm-hmm. um yeah, it, it, i would just like to say mm-hmm. they're very valid they're very valid things there are things to be aware of when you want to practice it's not at the a must that there are multiple ways to advocate that don't require active agitation like that you are out in the public doing things mm. there are many ways that you can do it you know even just collecting information for those who actually go out to do the gritty work is enough so like the way you were taking photos the other day is doing the is playing your part in in one way or the other i would like to insist to put it out like on record that like i don't i don't hold anyone against actively getting into into this space you know some people might feel the urge but like i don't i don't actively hold against artists or creatives or whatever even though um, a point i was going to make is that i strongly sit in with them um, are you a fan of nina simone for sure yeah, so I mean, I'm a strong believer and I love um, the belief that this woman had about what the artist, what it means to be the artist and what it means to be the creative. So that is what fuels me a lot of the time when I do some of this advocacy work is those, that idea that you are a vessel of the times, you know, you are someone who is uh, documenting your day to day and also you have a voice that can maybe change your day-to-day scenarios so it's a very strong thing to to hold on to but i think people need to take care of themselves and play it safe before you you decide to do some of these things Mm -hmm. and also i think i tried to to tackle or to be an advocate or to to yeah to, to lead this way personally first in my surrounding you know in my immediate surrounding right to yeah, see if I can, I if I can mm. really conquer that, because I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm continuously finding out what is that I am comfortable and not comfortable doing, or I'm able uh, to and not able to do. If I can't hold eye contact with someone, <laughs> I, I, like a member of the family, yeah. because I feel like, yeah, I mean, I have a huge problem with eye contact. What? I yeah. do. How, how do you tackle that, even with your family? No, I mean. Less with my family, but like there are people that I am familiar with that I still can't um, have straight eye contact with. So things like that. Like if I can't do that, <laughs> I, I just feel like there are some things that I need to take care of first in my immediate surrounding. And I think this is also why I gravitate towards writing personal stories or talking about things that I have had experience with firsthand. I, I wouldn't want to start writing... I'm not in a space where I can address other people's dealings with the world because I just feel like there's such a huge 
chunk of that that I need to get out for myself, just from my surrounding and for my everyday life. Things that I want to, I guess, solve in the world or in my community, I get to then tackle personally. Interesting. Thank God. Is the hustle worth it? Are there times you wish you had a regular income or stable life? Oh yeah, like actually, it's funny. Actually, I think I answered this question the wrong way in the first time we had this conversation. Really? <laughs> but I, I know, I know it's funnily enough. I know I say it. I feel like um, it's worth it, and um, like uh, for me, it's about what is worth it to you. I think that was what I said last time. It really is mm-hmm. what 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 are you claiming worth is to you? Um, for you to start basing that off, and for me. Um, the the life and the practice has fulfilled my boxes of what worth means to me, right? So um, to answer the question, Adijaka, definitely it's all been worth it. Is it difficult? It's very difficult. Um, the process alone of living or surviving in a city like Nairobi um, makes it already that it's not an easy uh, thing to do to be a self-employed. Then on top of that, to be a creative in the visual arts field especially but um through many years of um existing in this space i and being smart i you've managed to make certain opportunities work in my favor that constant that provide some form of a constant uh, um income to survive on um uh, it's also some another important thing is um what do you call it, like your lifestyle, you know, what sort of lifestyle are you living, are you comfortable in the sort of lifestyle that you can sustain, and I'm personally comfortable in the, in, in the lifestyle that I that I currently live in and, and can sustain, but then I was going to say, I didn't mention this the last time we spoke, is that um, unfortunately this year has started and messed up for a lot of people the plans they had for the year, but one of the things that happened um, early in the year, I got a position to as a lecturer at a university uh, named Al Jamea in Karen, and I was going to be the university's arts administrator as well as an arts tutor. Wow. And uh, my position was should have started in April, mm-hmm. but now has been moved um, to most likely June, and that is only if the lockdown is lifted and. And some things go back to normal, and the board of the school determine that they still want. There's just so many conversations around that. But I'm just trying to say um, that would have been, let's say, my first formal employment in the sense of a a job, like a eight to five sort of a job, um, which is I find very funny because I'd always somewhat promised myself that I wouldn't ever get employed. But I think it's a fair compromise because I'm going to be teaching art, so like that's how I forgive myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, to answer the question, I'm sure I'm sure that um, having that sort of an employment in that sort of a space will make me very very comfortable. Because like like I've said, I'm already comfortable. So to get that on top of my practice will would be making my life a lot more comfortable. But even without having a had a formal job. I was very much um, sustaining something of a comfortable living, doing what I do, and I can say it's definitely been worth it through the um, through the years that I've been practicing. And by what standards do you think you judge yourself in your work? 
Because you had answered it in the previous podcast, I think. Yeah, uh, I remember that. <laughs> thing, I remember. What did I say? Oh my goodness, and it was such a good answer. I know. Um, the thing is, honestly, I can't answer that question now. <laughs> it's like the other answer is literally blocking me from being honest. <laughs> what are you still struggling with personally that if he wasn't there, you would move faster and further? Um, so, so, so many things. Um, about getting very very personal with you i'll probably start including all my health issues but i'll leave those ones to myself uh i understand i think my main one is anxiety like with mo- with most of us as creatives is that anxiety that you sit you live with is a barrier that um i'm i've had for many years and i'm glad is now somewhat becoming a companion like rather than being seen as a uh an achilles heel is becoming a lot more of something that I'm accepting as an, a, a, a companion, a life companion, because I don't think the anxiety of the works that we create will ever leave. But I'm so sure that if I didn't have that anxiety, I would have a tremendous body of work because I would have no limitations along, um, around, no inhibitions rather is the word around things that I make. I would just make and not care. Um, but uh, besides that, I don't think there's anything I can say um, that is so critical in that sense that it would is limiting me. It's not fair to say things like uh, finance and matters like that, I think, because there is always a way around something like that, you know? There's always a way around getting maybe it was finance for a project. So it would be too simple a thing to say that it hinders my practice. The strongest thing that hinders myself from moving forward is literally myself. So a philosopher. no but that's good that was a beautiful answer i suffer from i mean i don't know if i suffer from it but it's a constant thing that um also holds me back anxiety you've put it very professionally Uh, yeah i just used to sort of call it overreacting and being stupid (laughs) but um exactly what it is (laughs) but i also overthink a lot you had mentioned that um, imposter syndrome. Is it imposter syndrome? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's the word. Exactly. Um, that feeling. <laughs> you don't feel like you belong. You feel like, uh, yeah, there are people better than you and that you're not really yeah, supposed like to be there. Some ideas, you know, like you're not the one who's coming up with all these awesome things that you're creating when in actuality it really is you. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a funny thing that we all go mm-hmm. How do you deal with your anxiety? Oh, man. By just kicking myself in the ass and telling myself that if I don't do it, who else is going to do it? (laughs) You have to. I deal with it by fighting it head on, yeah? And funnily enough, anxiety wins a lot of the time. Sometimes you, I I feel like I almost want to call it destiny because there are days when um, anxiety makes me not do something and do something else instead and the something else instead um, for instance achieves some form of success, then I start questioning well, was that the way it was supposed to be? Like, mm-hmm. had I put thing uh, version number one, how do I not know that it would have achieved maybe the same result? You get what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Like, it has sometimes, my anxiety has sometimes determined the right path for me. Until this point, I just, that's why I call it a companion. It's just something I roll with. Like, if it's pushing me too much towards don't do this, I sometimes accept. But then there are many a day when I just tell myself you're being, you know, get out of your head and, and just do what it is you have to do. 
what was the worst anxious period in your work? <laughs> no, you didn't ask me that question last time. Actually, there are so many. It's, it's not just one. Um, the closest I can remember is November of last year, having to work towards my my group show at the Alliance Fonse. It was somewhat like a solo show for me. Um, based off of the amount of work I had to create and the sort of the space and everything and the vibe around the exhibition, I was working on another um, project with the Gota Institute at the time, and that project had been running for a couple of months, and it was literally something we were working on every day. So my, my I had limited time, I was very stressed, and then I felt like I would, besides challenging whether what I am creating makes any sense, I was also challenging whether I would even be able to bring the work to completion by the, there were just so many things. And so for me, that was the most anxious period ever. I literally got to the point where I was um, calling my mother to break down <laughs> every evening. Like it was mm. scheduled. I just knew that at 7.30, I would call her, cry, cry for an hour, and then <laughs> go back to work. That's so sweet, so but that's like nice. A, mm-hmm. it, sorry? That's sweet that you, you cried to mama. <laughs> it was so bad. No, I mean, like, I don't even want to exaggerate. It was a bad time. I, I felt like quitting. Mm-hmm. So I knew, I think, look, in hindsight, it was very defining, uh, very important, because it was one of those times that really showed me what it means to be an artist. It showed me that it's work. It really is a lot of mm. hard work. There's no it breaks down to the hard work, you know. Mm-hmm. It, um, what I was doing in relativity is very small scale. There, uh, You look at the kind of international exhibition some people get and you look like at a, a, a space like the size of the MoMA and you're told to fill it with work. And when I look at what I did, it doesn't even come close to comparison. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, so now, are you now going to break down because you've been given the MoMA to create work under a tight scale? So it's like, it just riles me up to understand, you know, um, this is practice for the bigger things that might be coming, you know, like the more hardcore things. But it was a terrible time. Living within it, I was so anxious. I was in such a bad space. And that is one of many times the same kind of thing has happened. There are days you get, um, I get a commission from a client and I feel very deeply about that work. Or maybe I convince them very strongly that I could do it. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the time to give the client the work comes across and I can't, I'm getting more and more anxious. I'm not sure I've done the right thing. The funniest situations with me, the days that I get like um, work from people, mm-hmm. maybe it's an oil painting. I really love oil painting. It's mm-hmm. how I began. Oil painting was my first um, form of art. That was my first product. So I have a very soft spot for oil painting. These people, the people give me oil painting portrait commissions that I do. And then after doing the thing, people don't really understand the attachment that some of us have to our work. Um, I only sell my work because I need to live. Like, I only sell my work because, or rather let my work leave my presence because I need it to sustain me. But if I could hold on to everything I create, I would definitely, that's what some of, like, our work means to some of us. There are days I do work for people, and, like, I really, really like what I've made. <laughs> but I have to lie to the person that it, like, it got lost. Or it got spoiled so that I can keep uh, it. That's and on record, do, you know. So. <laughs> oh my God, by the way. Off record. Really? So, Come on, like, let's just put that in so, there. No, you can have it. No, you can have it. You can have it. Like, <laughs> but I'm just saying. 
I get very anxious. I get anxious like that about where is this thing going to go? I'm never going to see it again. And um, sometimes there's this feeling I used to get a long time ago that was like every time I create is is like draining a creation bar. Like there's a hundred percent creation bar inside me, and every time I bring something out, the bar loses points and mm-hmm. becomes like ninety, then eighty. So as I let these things go, I'm letting them go forever, and I'm letting that the the ability to create to that level go. Do you get what I'm trying mm-hmm, to say? Mm-hmm. So you feel like you want to hold on to the things that you love because like I'll never see you, I'll never do it like this again. I'll never make it like this again. So I, I mean a lot of these silly anxiety attacks come and sometimes they mess up your practice. Like when I started being managed, when I got my manager earlier this year, mm-hmm. I had one of those incidences of, of, a, of a piece that I really wanted to keep. And my manager freaked out. They're like, "You can't live like this. Mm. You, can't, you can't be, you can't be making things and then like falling in love with them and then being unable to give them to the owners." So, I'm, but it's something you need. We just like have to figure out how to, as a creative, as a person, you have to find, figure out how to deal with your anxiety. Otherwise, it can really stunt your life. <laughs> it can mess you up. I think on that note, we should end because we have spoken longer than what we're putting up here this is just part one so this is the end of part one i want people to hear part two and the rest of the conversations that we've been having i just want to thank you again for saying yes to being on the podcast i'm looking forward to seeing how this turns out but i for sure enjoyed it very much thank you i've enjoyed i've enjoyed my i don't know like i can say i've enjoyed my time i've enjoyed the very many podcasts that we've been having <laughs> like we had one session and the truth is we've had multiple sessions it's true. We've made multiple yeah yes it's been very awesome and i hope your podcast goes on to grow and i'm very much looking forward to hearing the rest of so, yeah. me too okay we're done